0: Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Next up is my conversation with poet Tommy Pico to talk about his latest book-length poem, Junk, out from Tin House Books. During our conversation, I reference a podcast episode from Tommy's own podcast, Food for Thought, where they discuss the pitfalls and nuances of writing across difference, especially when one is writing down a vector of power. I'll put links to this episode as well as to some other shows that we talk about on the podcast up at the Patreon page. I'll also be adding Tommy reading from his collection feed which is forthcoming from Tin House in the fall of 2019 up on the Bonus Archive. You can find all of this and how to support Between the Covers at patreon.com slash Covers. Enjoy today's program.
1: These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us.
0: I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world i think it's really hard to live without stories and if somebody tells you like this is the way you're going to end up you're lucky if you can forget that
1: you know there's me and then there's writer guy me and then there's me working which is the absence of me it's just story
0: had no idea how to write a novel didn't know if it would ever come to fruition was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naaman, your host. Today's guest is poet Tommy Pico. Pico is the author of three book-length poems that chronicle the insights and adventures of his persona, Teebs, a queer indigenous poet in New York City. His first book, IRL from Birds, LLC, won the 2017 Brooklyn Library Literary Prize and was a finalist for the 2018 Kate Tufts Discovery Award. His follow-up nature poem from Tin House Books was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award and winner of a 2018 American Book Award. His most recent book, Junk, is also out from Tin House Books, the third in what will ultimately be a quartet, with the final book of the Teebs Chronicles feed coming out next fall. Prior to the Teebs Quartet, Pico was the founder and editor-in-chief of Birdsong, an anti-racist, queer-positive collective, small press and zine. He was also a Queer Art Mentors Inaugural Fellow, a Lambda Literary Fellow, and a Fellow in Poetry from the New York Foundation for the Arts. He is also the recipient of the 2017 Friends of Literature Prize from the Poetry Foundation and a 2018 Whiting Award. Originally from the Viejas Indian Reservation of the Kumayai Nation, he now lives in Brooklyn, where he co-curates the reading series, Poets with Attitude with Morgan Parker and co-hosts Food for Thought, a podcast about queer identity, race, sex, relationships, literature, and pop culture. C.A. Conrad describes Pico's work as the marriage of extraordinarily sharp writing with the most astute commentary on almost every possible thing a human will feel, think, do, dance like, or smell like. Alexander Chi calls Pico a poet of canny instincts with a lyric that is somehow so casual and so serious at the same time. Of his latest collection, Junk, Morgan Parker says, as ever, Pico is a master of inclusion, of elevating the mundane to the sublime, of examining absurdity and grave seriousness with equal measure. Kava Akbar adds, reading Tommy Pico's Junk, I kept thinking of Heather McHugh's pronouncement that the main discipline of poetry is to keep finding life strange. Pico is the master of making the stone stony or returning the sheer absurdity of being to everything from grief to intimacy to dating apps to donuts. Junk insists on the urgency of the quotidian of, to borrow a phrase from Pico, vibrant inconsequence. It's rare to read a book that makes living feel so alive. Welcome to Between the Covers, Tommy <laughs> Pico.
1: I didn't know you were going to read my whole ass bio. Jeez, you didn't <laughs> have to do that, but thank you so much. You're welcome.
0: Before we talk about junk, I, I was at the uh, co-interview you did with Denez Smith at Ten House this summer. Oh,
1: rad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Denez. Love you, baby.
0: Yeah, and that was really great, and, and you focused on... Um, finding one's voice. Mm-hmm. And what was really interesting to me about this question of, of finding your voice specific to you is that you sort of characterized yourself pre-Teeb's or, or pre-being a published poet as someone who grew up who was quiet, mm-hmm. who was shy, um, who who maybe didn't have a lot of confidence and, and where people were making fun of the way your voice sounded. Yeah, And so we have this tension between the way I think you're perceived in the world As someone who's both on the page and in performance, very confident and is very identified and singularly identified by your voice. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about you and this past that you have and then this persona that you have and, and this question of finding your voice and how you ultimately found yours?
1: Yeah, well, a part of it has to do with the fact that I don't think I was born shy. I was born loud as all crap. I don't know what we're allowed to say here. I just did a radio show last night that was super FCC friendly, so um, I'm going to try to curb my swears or whatever, but they had to put me in a different nursery with the other babies because I would make everybody else cry because I just would not stop shouting. So... And 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 my mother always told me that like you know when she would drive by the bus stop where I was, I was surrounded by my cousins, and they were all paying rapt attention to everything that I was saying. And so I and and I had a tape recorder when I was little, and I had it, and I would just tell all these stories into it before I could even read or write, before I knew what spelling was, before I knew what the dictionary was. Like I had like a little talk show between like my stuffed animals and my Barbies and my GI Joes. You know what I mean? So it's like I always had that kind of personality and that that voice I mean, and some of my most treasured childhood memories are just like singing in the choir at church and I could feel like my whole body vibrating. It was something mm-hmm. so intensely spiritual and something so, uh, the, 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 the marvelous power of a voice of people's voices is something I've obsessed with that I've always been obsessed with that I think is literal magic that I can believe in because how on earth do people make those noises? You know, how do people sing? Like how do people, People, like I, 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 you know, I remember just like listening to Lauryn Hill and being like, "This is divine." Yeah. Um, but it was sometime around puberty and uh, around my sort of, you know, a, a, I mean, I've always been a fairy. You know what I mean? Like I've always been a feat. There's never been anything inside of me that has been able to be butch or whatever. I just can't butch it up. It's not possible for me. Uh, I, I I feel like I the, the starting to get like um, bullied or whatever, or hatred and and from from people in high school, um, specifically around the way that I sounded, the way that I acted, the way that my body uh, moved in space, the way that I you know my whether it was like my um, you know my bookishness or whatever. Um, it really did a number on my self-confidence. I became incredibly quiet. I became incredibly shy. Um, it was hard for me to raise my hand in class because I felt like everything that I was was a beacon for terrible— cra- I mean, that's that's internalized homophobia and racism and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it took me— a long time. It took me probably 15 years after I left and went to college and graduated and, and started my collective and, and decided I knew. I mean, when I was my, my senior year in, in college, because I, I just I knew I wanted to start singing again because that was like the purest joy I'd ever had in my entire life. Uh, um, I took I, I had a, something at Sarah Lawrence. It's called a music third, where a third of this is some you know liberal uh, arts college crap, uh, where a third of your study could go towards one discipline. And so I chose a music third. So I had a singing teacher. I was in a performance class. I had um, a. Uh, I had to do music theory. I was in a chorus and. It was the most terrifying thing I'd ever done because in learning, and relearning the magic of my voice, I had to confront a ton of trauma. And I wasn't wholly ready to do it then, but I knew I had to start somewhere. And then graduating and moving to Brooklyn and starting this collective and creating a stage for myself where I, like, every other month, I had to get up in front of people, host a reading series, and read myself. Um, it was, again, some of the most difficult stuff I've ever had to do. I had the shakes. I had the sweats, my face would flush Like it just I had my entire body Was covered in nasty ass sweat And I had to do that And it had to be nasty for 10 years Mm -hmm. And probably like maybe 4 years ago I kind of locked into the performance style and the voice and the cadence and the rhythm and the patter of what I do now. And it was just like a realization of the thing that I knew was there buried underneath all of that stuff on underneath all of that, underneath all that trauma underneath all of those people telling me that, uh, like, I sounded like a girl. First of all, I should be so lucky. There's nothing wrong with that. But second of all, it's like all of the, all of the things that they were uncomfortable about in themselves, that projective identification, like I caught it. I thought there was something wrong with me and it had to be, I had to work really hard to learn that those were things in those people that they were not ready to confront, that they were terrified of. And so they had to take it out on me and I don't take other people's shit no more, so. So when you arrived
0: in New York, before you had a collective, was there a time period of, I don't fit in, and then the collective arises out of trying to find your own your own space within New York when that's not happening? Or was it, I'm going to New York, and I'm going to start a collective, and I'm going to Unravel these acts of of self-censorship that I was experiencing. It was before. It,
1: it was absolutely not intentional <laughs> I don't think I've ever been too intentional about much of the stuff that I've done in my life I just went on a whole scree about undoing trauma, but that's because but there was more of like a one foot in front of the other type of thing It was like I found one stone in the creek and then I and once I found that stone I found the next stone so it was very much like day-to-day foot by foot trudge by trudge or whatever um, but like I knew that I wasn't happy um, and I had gra- I went to Sarah Lawrence as an undergrad and I went to study like medicine i was going to go to medical school and once i didn't do that and i moved to brooklyn and i was kind of like i have to figure out a new plan and i tried to find a space for myself in the new york i guess literary scene at the time and i wasn't finding it i wasn't finding my people um but then i looked around and i had graduated with a lot of my friends who and they all moved to brooklyn they were writers they were artists they were singers they were academics you know and i and i was like wait a minute we're already here. And I just kind of took the people around me and I was like, hey, why don't we make a thing together? Listen, I'll do all the work. I'll bind them all. I'll host the reading. I'll do the publicity. I'll make sure we're in time at New York. I'll make sure we're in the New Yorker. I'll take care of all of that. I'm a boss. That's the people I come from. You just give me a poem or you give me a short story. You give me a drawing. You sing at the launch and let's just do this. And I think I was really grateful for the experience. And I think all my friends are really grateful too now because, like, some of the people in the collective, like my friend Sam McInnes who was in it, he just did. Um, Lord's last album cover. Um, yeah, my friend Lauren Wilkinson, who was in the collective, like her debut novels coming out from Random House in February. Um, my friend Milan Zernick, who was doing stuff for it too, like he um, shot uh, uh, Christina Aguilera's latest album cover. Um, uh, my friend Will Varner does some stuff at BuzzFeed now. So it's like we, we all kind of um, kind of came up together.
0: Well, Lord's mom, just as a random aside, is a big fan of the podcast. She's a she's a poet in New Zealand. Oh, who, really? Yeah. So you can say hi to Lord's mom. Yeah. If shout you want. out to
1: Lord's mom. Uh,
0: so, so much much of your work dwells in sort of a a tension or a disjunction between you as a member of the Kumayai Nation engaging with erasure of culture, the rupture of lineage around language and knowledge, and then your life on the other hand in the in New York City. Uh, a life that one reviewer describes as that of a pleasure seeking technology addicted New Yorker chasing boys on apps, but it's also a place where you found a different sort of community and solidarity so i I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the decision to leave the viejas reservation mm-hmm. and how um how fraught that decision was or how or how simple and obvious it was mm-hmm
1: I never imagined, when I was little, I never imagined leaving. I didn't know anyone who left the reservation, so it wasn't even a possibility to me. And even when I did go to college, I mean, it was really scary and it was really difficult, but I always thought I would just come back right afterwards, um, staying in New York or staying someplace else. Just never really, um, it, it didn't come to me as a possibility, but... I had always grown up and not in a condescending way, but I'd always grown up just like, just, just wanting more, um, like feeling, feeling unquenchable in a way, like wanting more saturation. I wanted more news. I wanted more, uh, I wanted louder music. I I wanted, I wanted bigger things. I wanted bigger buildings. I I wanted, I wanted, um, you know, I just more food, more water, more choice, more blank. Um, And I felt, yeah, very insatiable as a child. And I remember um, being outside on the porch of my house and looking there. So you could look in two directions, left to right, in the nighttime sky. And to the left was towards the desert. And the sky was gorgeous. And it was like swirling with all of these colors and all of these galaxies and, you know, all of these worlds. And and, and, um, it was completely and totally unlike anything you could ever see on land. And to the other side um, was just like light pollution from San Diego that you could see over the top of of viejas mountain the sacred mountain on the reservation and in that that featureless saturated sky i was way more obsessed with than than to the left where i could see the milky way because i just wanted to be there i mm. wanted to be where the lights were because i'd grown up looking at the stars i wanted to see the stars on the ground you know um, and and i remember um, visiting my sister who was living in new york when i was in fifth grade um, i didn't know her growing up she was adopted when i was little but when I was in fifth grade, she got back in contact with my mother. And so we all went to visit her. And I remember surfacing from the subway and just seeing all of the noise and, and all of the cars and all of the people. And I just knew that I wanted to be there. I knew that like, it would be some work. I didn't know how I was going to get there. But so I've been learning a lot about plot as I've been uh, writing like for film. And um, what I've learned about plot is it's just like you, you you have the goal and the the plot is like the map of how to get there. And so it was like I had to figure out the plot of how I got to New York. Hmm.
0: And how how would you characterize your you as Tommy in relationship to Tebes, the persona? Like do you feel like Tebes is an amplification of who you are or more of a a way to distance yourself or shield yourself with, with having teebs as, as a, a avatar.
1: I don't think I could perform if I didn't have Tebs. I don't think I could get up in front of it's, it's, it's weird because, um, you know, rest in peace, Aretha Franklin, people would talk about like Gladys Knight and people like that would talk about how Aretha was so shy, you know, and it's like, well, how could you be shy and then do what you do in front of people night after night, that is your job. And it's like, you have to create that person, that armor, that thing, that diva, that entity that can kind of take over and do what you can't. And I've found sometimes, you know, like Tebs will kind of leap out when I feel scared or when I feel hesitate, hesitant or whatever. I just have to make that decision. Like, no, be that boy, be that, be that guy, be yeah. that guy. And um, you know, he kind of leaps out of me.
0: So, so you you've talked about your dad before, who was a chairman of the reservation, saying that he was good at his job because he didn't like
1: it. Is mm. that
0: something that you feel connected to around Teebs and the persona that, around performance?
1: I, I do. And, and I'm going to clarify um, that to me what he was saying was that um, you know, being the, being the mouthpiece, being the travel chairman, being the person out front, um, if you want the spotlight, you're going to get swallowed by it you know, so he never, that's not the job that he wanted, but he realized that he was good at and no one else was going to do it. And that's similarly how I feel, um, that, and I think that kind of, that can save some, not, not liking it maybe, um, saves a little bit of, of, you can steal a little bit of yourself so that you don't get lost in the thing.
0: Well, in junk itself, you say, I can write you or be you not both the more i am tebes the less i'm writing because writing requires the hesitation the fear the insecurity the reflection mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, teeps can't exist. The writer can't be teeps. The performer can, for sure. But um, I think uh, sensitivity to hesitation and understanding why, instead, because it's like you know, you can't, you can't, you can't formulate and, and decide at the same time. Like either you're thinking or you're deciding. But in my experience, anyway, you just you can't do both. Like some at a trigger has to get pulled for lack of a better uh, word or analogy or whatever. And teeps is a trigger puller. But I. I'm the, I'm the, brain, I'm the, I'm the sensitive one. I'm Tommy boy. You know what I mean? Like I am, I am, I am a, 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 a laugh away from a tear at all times.
0: So, so each of your books has a distinctive form. Uh, so IRL, you wanted to write the longest Tumblr post ever, and it's influenced by, Tape for the turn of the year by Ar Ammons, mm-hmm. um, and then nature poem. You want to evoke a landscape. There's more punctuation. There's more space around the language. There's more places to pause. Um, tell us about the formal decisions that make junk junk.
1: Yeah. Uh, so a part of what I wanted to, a part of the project of junk was it started off as kind of a breakup poem, and I thought, well. Isn't it? Wouldn't it be hilarious to do a breakup poem in couplets? Ha 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 ha! <laughs> um, and I'd also just finished *Garbage* by A.R. Ammons, and that was in couplets of garbage to junk. Um, that. Uh, was definitely at the forefront of my thinking. Um, I wanted the stanzas to be more or less the same length. So I went for as close to five, four and a half inches as I could get because I wanted to make the text formally indistinct from page to page. I wanted to look the exact same so that, and, and still be made of authority kind of language, but that if you found an uh, if you found a, a moment that you really liked uh, and you turned the page and you tried to go back to find it, it would get lost. And that's kind of I wanted to make a book that was a junk drawer so that as you went th- like a junk drawer is made up of very distinct things. But 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 because of its mass, it becomes indistinct. And so you it's easy to lose things in the junk drawer. And so that's kind of what I was going for formally with the book.
0: I imagine
1: that the editing must have been crazy. I cried. I cried all the time. There is. So my friend Roy and I were staying at Airbnb in Austin and he would come out regularly and I would just be sobbing into like a goblet of wine watching um, um, for dusk till dawn, the television show, Um, because I I, anytime I edited something, it would jam up the whole thing for 80 pages. (laughs) And there was there were there was just weeks of me just weeping, being like, I. This is going to be so difficult to put back together, but it still needs to be the best it could possibly be. And so when I I did a a workshop at Tin House a few years ago and Jericho Brown was my workshop leader and he pointed out that like um, I think in this isn't what he said, but my interpretation was um, that I had stopped editing it because I was afraid of fucking it up. And I, I was like, Ugh. and so there are s- certain parts where he points out. He's like, yes, this is a long poem. Yes, but, but are these words the best words? You know what I mean? It's, you could use run, or you could use scamper, or you could use leap. Are you using the best words? And I got so mad because I knew I had, to go, I had to do another sweep over the thing and fix the words that weren't working. And that messed it up. But then when I stitched that back together, it was the final piece.
0: Wow. So this was probably the most difficult to edit because of that four point five inch yes. constraint.
1: It was the most difficult to edit. It's also dense. Um, so its word count is like twice the other books. Mm. And uh, yeah, it was just I, I didn't know going into it. I'm glad I didn't go I I'm glad I didn't know going into how difficult it would be because I probably wouldn't have done it.
0: In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to the poet Tommy Pico about his latest book, Junk. Out from Tin House Books. So much like you trouble the notion of of nature and what is natural in in nature poem, you sort of do the same thing, exploring every conceivable connotation of the word junk. But I'd love to hear what you feel are the the principal the principal questions or the primary meanings of junk that Mm. sort of motivator or or, um, help you unspool all these different connotations of junk in the book.
1: Yeah, I mean the adhering molecule or whatever the 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 speck of dust around which the 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 snowflake gets made uh was that I wanted so so it, it became in the wake like I said of a breakup but also the loss of an apartment and the loss of a job and I was just in that kind of stasis and I could not like I didn't know where I I ended and the rest of the world started, I felt super porous, like the membrane that that keeps me inside just kind of popped. And I was just reckless. I felt like unmoored, but I, but I had to figure out how um, the feeling, how, how I could translate that feeling into something more useful. And then I started to think about this idea of use and the idea of utility. And if you are stripped of your identities in some way, can there be uh, a kind of beauty or can there be a solace in just being and not having to do? Um, and and that, that liminal space is what I call junk.
0: Well, I want to ask you about usefulness in the realm of language because I feel like you question the usefulness of certain language in this book, language that perhaps is really junk language, but it's disguised as elevated language. Mm. Um, I think some of the things you're pointing out are the ways language is utilized and instrumentalized and even weaponized. But uh, I was hoping before we have this conversation, you'd read a little excerpt that I picked up. For out sure. For you.
1: Yeah. From junk. How sad To only feel suspicious love, subcutaneous suspicion, or sometimes thorny suspicion, ossified suspicion. Hedwig's journey through wig in a box, finding a way through the perceived prison of makeup and wigs into identity. Haven't figured out how to be Indian and not have suspicion coursing through me like cortisol, but we all have our struggles. I'm learning to be less wary of abstraction. It looks periwinkle. Sorry, my mom's a synesthete. I've had to suffer through so much abstraction in these book things, you can at least give me a few more pages. Hunger is a room to be tended is the kind of sentence I resent. In fact, if you don't like everything I like, you're a goddamn dog pornographer. Abstraction, how can I say this? My rancor isn't anti-intellectual. I just hate it when you never use contractions. Do you want to do something fun? Do you want to say LARP five times fast? LARP, 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 LARP. The bradash, the shaman, the noble savage, the Indian problem, the squaw, the Indian princess, the spirit animal, the drunk Indian, the teary eyed environmentalist, considering something as a general quality or characteristic apart from its concrete realities, specific objects, or actual instances from the Latin word for separation. Work it like you're working a pole. God, I can't believe I'm actually gonna write this. Hi. I like myself. It's taken me seven generations to dig my junk situation. It's how I'm seen, felt, and fought. The American imposition that rumbles my coffee break. I shout into the God, the God buffers in the buff Shit, that Erica lyric is actually feeling kinda hungry Cause my high is coming down Speaking of munchies It's okay to be wrong, dummy My squishy, delicious brain begs me to write But the couch and the office siren songs Like rich vanilla and almonds Nap, gentle hero Nap, damn you From the window, the city grows brackish beanstalks Tall and fat and largely dark Only a craptacular society would build luxury rooms. Not even the lights will live in. While so, so many sleep in slumps, surrounded by all their junk. What's the material significance of an empty luxury apartment? What it's like to express potential over utility are not lost on me. The sky and snowflakes humping a big turquoise Eames chair on the street. The featureless Upper East Side. The hired-up city. El Niño year had me thinking snow might even happen. The kitchen junk. The clock. Junk, the shoes I always mean to resole. If junk is the space between utility, the poet and writer's block. And somehow the junk, aka history, aka snow, keeps piling up. There are far too many beauties who think they're trash, and too many dipshits who think they're God's gift, too often impaled by the reflex to ascribe meaning onto things.
0: You've been listening to Tommy Pico read from his latest poetry collection, Junk. In this section, you, you say, I'm learning to be less weary of abstraction. And I am I suspect, but I'm not 100% sure you're being 100% ironic. But I think back to a, a conversation I had with the poet yun Song Kim, who talks about the white cube of freedom that white artists operate under. Mm-hmm. And she's very... Um, suspicious of all abstract art and then a, a later conversation i had with john Keane, who i think shared many of yun sung kim's grievances but w- wasn't uh, didn't have the same across the board suspicion of abstraction mm-hmm. so i was i was curious a little bit if you could talk about um what you're what you're uh, interrogating here with abstraction and and where maybe you you fall ultimately?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I'm. This is going to be a little indelicate because I don't think I'm necessarily um smart enough to to totally talk about this subject. And I'm not talking about that in a self deprecating way. I do believe in my intelligence, but there's, but, but it's, I don't think I'm smart. I just think i l- I listen and I pay attention. Um, but um, this specifically was regarding Frank Moten and. I was I was with my friend Roy, um, shout out to Roy, and we were talking about Fred, and I was just like, I, I, and we were talking about the kind of supremacy, uh, the white supremacy of abstraction, right? M- my suspicion of it is that it's not saying anything different than I'm saying, but like you have to uh, submit to it in order to glean its intention. And that kind of submission, I'm suspicious of as an indigenous queer person in contemporary Trump's America. Um, And, 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 and it's like, I, I, I want to make things that feel like they're earned that people come to that not necessarily things that people have to submit themselves to. And then I was like, but I'm writing a, poem and couplets like <laughs> what are you talking about thieves, Jesus Christ. Um, and, and, and uh, I think anything worth your time requires a kind of submission. And so I was tr- in that in that instance in particular, I was trying to to, to be to, to be less suspicious not only of abstraction but all systems, right? All systems that require investment and that maybe it's investment and not submission.
0: I love that answer. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you say lines like, what's it like to express potential over utility? And what's the material significance of an empty luxury apartment? And when you critique future tenses, like what if we, and in IRL you, you say that you recoil at the use of the, the word we, mm. I think of um, other native poets who are also working on, on insisting upon utility. Like I'm thinking of... Uh, Lely Long Soldier's uh, engagement with Obama's apology. What does that apology mean as rhetoric if there's nothing that's like actually tangibly happening in the world in mm-hmm. relationship to the words? And she also has, she also resists using we it, often in that collection. Um, but when I think ultimately of, of the first person plural and rhetoric in poetry, it brings me back to sort of the ultimate first person plural user, Um the we rhetoric of Walt Whitman, mm-hmm. who is sort of the, uh, a poet most associated with the aspirational American dream. Mm-hmm. I have to wonder how an indigenous poet, and I'm sure all indigenous poets have different ways they do this, but how, how, how does Tommy Pico orient himself to the, to Walt Whitman, sort of the founding father of the American canon, mm-hmm. um, with regards to this and this sort of rhetoric. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I don't know her. (laughs) Um, basically, I'm just like, this is the new American rhetoric. You know what I mean? Like, this is, this is my form now. I didn't ask for this language. I didn't ask for this canon, but now it's mine. And watch me wreck the shit out of this house, Walt. (laughs) (laughs) It's mine now.
0: So in a way you feel like you're not necessarily in a dance with walt whitman in your poetry
1: no i am not in a dance with anybody but myself (laughs) but it's not i that's not a fully satisfying answer to me because to a certain extent yeah but it's more like he put his hand out and i was like no i'm gonna go with this other person (laughs) so we're still dancing and you're watching me (laughs) from your place wherever you are do you know that
0: that uh Alexi basketball poem defending Walt Whitman by chance?
1: Um, Sure, but not off the top of my head. It's not one, I think, that made a distinct impression.
0: Yeah. The only reason I thought of it is there was this interesting dynamic where like Walt Whitman's a basketball player among all of these different native basketball players. And for the most part, the other players, even though he's a a very good basketball player, are sort of laughing at his beard because Mm -hmm. it's ridiculous in the context uh, on the reservation, Uh, him sort of owning this prophetic tradition. But ultimately, in the end, the line is uh, something like this game belongs to him. And I wonder about like how no matter what's happening, you're sort of on the court that of the game that was invented by Walt Whitman or by by, you know, so they're playing by the rules of basketball in this poem. Um, but there's an ambiguous ending. It, and when you say that, you know, in a way you're accepting a different hand and maybe you're just um, stepping onto another court. And I wondered about, for instance, uh, when you uh, named your collective the Birdsong Collective, are there other lineages like you? you you're referencing a, a tradition of song cycles in the Kumeyaay Nation. Are there other lineages that you're ultimately um, putting in the center of the of the poetry that
1: you're writing? Absolutely. I mean, you can compare what I do to Walt Whitman. You could compare what I do to A.R. Ammons. You could compare what I do to Ann Carson. You could compare what I do to Maggie Nelson. But ultimately, my tradition isn't their tradition. The Ishakapa, the bird songs, existed for 10,000 years. They were long song cycles. My dad is a bird singer. That's as much my tradition as the poetic tradition is. That... The the, the, the the song cycles run in my blood. Like, whatever else I've learned is like the only, the, the, the outer layer of skin. You know what I mean? And that flakes off. <laughs> and the blood is what animates me, and the blood is what can, makes me, the blood is what compels me to do this work. And once I, re- I didn't go into it knowing, but again, Doing is more important to me than knowing, because in doing, I I learn. And it wasn't until I started that I realized the tradition that I was borrowing from. I didn't get into it being like, I'm going to make the first new bird songs in 250 years. I went into it feeling compelled to do something and understanding that that I was compelled forward by forces greater than me. Namely, the ancestors who fought and survived and made sure that I was here sitting in this room across from you seven generations ago like their oppression and their survival was with me in mind like I understand that and I pay fealty to that and it gives me a purpose in life which was the most important thing I ever felt because I didn't have that before when I was editing IRL and I realized what tradition I was borrowing from and that I was I was innovating off of like I wept and I'm not a crier but I, I realized that was the first moment I'd ever had in my entire life of feeling like I was here for a reason. And I understood the importance of that because suicide rates on reservations in an Indian country and amongst indigenous people across the world is at endemic rates because so often I feel, this is my feeling anyway, is that like, we don't understand why you're still here. Um, and not in like, a, and almost in an existential way, but in, in a physical way. And then it's like, well, I'm going to end this question by ending myself. And that breaks my heart. And so um, I, I just kind of understood. And, and I know I'm uh, talking of this in the context of junk and talking about like <laughs> um, trying to find a, 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 a solace outside of utility. But, but utility is also really important. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, and that's why I said, you know, like whatever, this game belongs to him. Sure. But before that court was built, there was like a cement that it was built on top of. And that is what's mine.
0: Yeah. And one of the ways I would want to connect not your work to Walt Whitman, but your question and your interrogation of abstract language back to this question of junk, you say in junk, what goes into the display case versus what goes into the junk drawer. And when people write about Walt Whitman's relationship to to native tradition. like here's what here's what one um, one academic said, because they everyone's talking about his contradictory views. So for Whitman, according to this academic, depending on his moods and motivations, Indians could be the debris of evolutionary progress, the primitive versions of American selves that were left behind. Or the advance guard, the model fit survivors embodying qualities that Americans have to move towards. But in a weird way, it feels like he's doing both of those things in that line in junk, uh, putting natives in the display case and throwing them in the junk drawer, Mm -hmm. because he seems more interested in uh, Native Americans as an abstraction or potentially as a symbol of the inner life of a white person. Versus actual embodied people in the world that whose uh, needs and feelings need to be contended with. Does, mm-hmm. Am I making any sense? Can
1: you say that last part one more time? Well, just that but, he's... Oh, that not not needs and people whose who's feel like not as actual human beings. Yeah, yeah. I mean
0: the, the display case because he's the when people say it's contradictory. I wonder if it's contradictory that you could um, both want to put someone in the display case. And also throw them in the junk drawer. Yeah, in a way that feels like it's the same thing.
1: Oh, for sure. Either like the thing is like the difference between like what's on the floor and what's on a pedestal is just how hard that thing is shaking. You know what I mean? Like anything that is abstracted to that degree uh, is not alive. It's it's very sad. I mean, Ann Carson does the same thing in Autobiography of Red. Like uh, the extinction of a tribe becomes a metaphor, and it's like that's uh, that's all we are to you people is a metaphor. Well, I'm gonna be so loud and so sharp and so thorny and so good at what I do that you can't reduce me into any of those things. you're going to have to see the beating heart of these people of my people, of me, you know, my lineage and it's like these are the thoughts that I'm having right now, but like these are the thoughts we've always been having, and I'm using the wheat) <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, you've mentioned before that you you didn't learn about the two-spirit extra-gendered identities in indigenous cultures until you were in college, mm-hmm. that you didn't learn them from your grandmother, and that the word in Kumeyaay for in-between state is a lo- actually a lost word. And, and when I think about this, this severance of lineage, I think of what you said in The New Yorker more generally. You say, I don't have a really good relationship with my anger because I feel like it is unending. Mm. And what's interesting to me about that is anger is not the first word that I would use to, to uh, describe your poetry. Um, but the more that I return to your poems, uh, the longer, um, when I'm no longer swept up by the humor and the energy of them, the more obvious the anger feels to mm. me. But I, I guess I, I wanted to ask you about your relationship the the relationship of anger to to your poetry,
1: yeah, um, you know if you if you take into account the humor, right, and you take into account the obsessiveness, and you take into account the hunger, I think they can, in different ways, if you if you if you pulled on the tether and you connected it, you would find, I suspect that they all have their origin in anger. You know, that like that's, that was the nucleus and then all of these things kind of erupted out of it because if there's no recourse for your anger, it has to take a different form, right? Mm-hmm. If there's no like, you know, I demand my part right now and somebody gives it to you, then it's gone, right? But if, but if nobody is ever addressing that, then it, it has to, it, I think it takes more wily forms or more digestible forms until then it, then it gets inside of you and then, then it explodes, mm-hmm. I think.
0: Well, I picked out two pages of Nature Poem
1: I was hoping you'd read. For sure. From Nature Poem. I can't write a nature poem because English is some Stockholm shit. It makes me complicit in my tribe's erasure. Why should I give a fuck about poetry? It's a container for words like whilst and hither and tamp. It conducts something of permanent and universal interest. Poems take something like an apple and turn it into the skin, the seeds, and the core. They talk about gravity, about Adam and Snow White, and the stem of knowledge. To me, Apple is the Indian drag queen who dresses like a milkmaid and sings half-breed by Cher. I would give a wedgie to a sacred mountain and gladly piss on the grass of the park of poetic form while no one's looking. I would stroll into the china shop of grammar and shout, let's trash this dump, and then gingerly slip out. And unrelated, once I called a cab to take me through the drive through at White Castle after the dining room closed. I sob at a Tim Lugos that Roy is reading me at the vegan diner on the formerly Italian side of Grand Street. This is our medium, he says. My grandmother dreamed of Tin Pan Alley and wrote a song once with the chorus, your kisses drop like atom bombs. Get in, loser. We're touring landscapes of the interior. In the mist of words, the plume the matter, the radiant energy. From a nature poem, part two. I can't write a nature poem because that conversation happens in the Hall of South American Peoples in the American Museum of Natural History between two white ladies in buttery shawls as they pass a display case of traditional garb from one tribe or another. It doesn't really matter to anyone, and the word natural in natural history hangs. Also, history. Also, people's hangs as in frames it's horrible how their culture was destroyed as if in some reckless storm but thank god we were able to save some of these artifacts history is so important will you look at this metalwork? I could cry look I'm sure you really do just want to wear those dreamcatcher earrings They're beautiful. I'm sure you don't mean any harm. I'm sure you don't really think about us at all. I'm sure you don't understand the concept of off-limits, but what if by not wearing a headdress in your music video or changing your damn mascot and perhaps adding .05% of personal annoyance to your life for the 20 minutes it lasts, the 103 young people who tried to kill themselves on the pine Ridge Indian Reservation over the past four months wanted to live like 50% more I don't want to be seen generally I'm a natural introvert and I definitely don't want to be seen by white ladies in buttery shawls but I will literally die if I don't scream.
0: I've been listening to Tommy Pico read from Nature Poem. You said that each of your books springs from a line from a previous book, and the line from Nature Poem from which junk is born goes. I used to read a lot of perfect poems. Now I read a lot of Garbage by A.R. Ammons. And Garbage is, among other things, is about the way society treats elders um, as garbage, as junk. And I guess I wanted to hear about who you're trying to honor or draw power from um, poets or otherwise is, mm-hmm. and, and when you're writing specifically with junk but for for any of the the Tebes chronicles
1: yeah well in, in junk specifically taking that interpretation of garbage uh i was thinking well you know that's not really i mean i definitely appreciate it and loved it and it's iconic to me but um i couldn't i couldn't claim garbage i i needed another word to describe the way that i was feeling and the kind of the kind of stasis I wanted to give shine to. And it was understanding, like, okay, yeah, maybe, like, I'm not factory fresh, but I'm also not garbage, so what is in between that? And that's where it kind of junk came from as a as a moniker. Um, and mostly it was to things that, or people, concepts, ideas, et cetera, that... Um, Maybe have outlived their original "quote unquote" purpose, but are waiting for a new kind of use, right? Um, so anything kind of liminal, anything kind of in between—that was the impetus, anyway. I, I hope that it was successful, but also just kind of like the 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 people for whom um, the the things that are 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 discarded um, and not considered beautiful, but that there is a beauty, like trying to redeem things for, for whom like their, maybe their, their shine has been diminished or their, their beauty has been mischaracterized or something like that.
0: And and your mom literally worked in a, in a thrift store, right? With a lot of, uh, with a lot of items that were broken that you were playing around in as a child.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I had a little box. I would go, I would get, I like every now and then I could get some I could bring some stuff home. And so I just had like a box of junk. But when she was working and I would get off school or if it was a weekend, I would just be in the junk. Like it felt so comfortable to me. And this idea that like, that there is like thrift stores always weirdly smell the same, even though they're made up of so many different things. There's that like thrift store smell. I was kind of obsessed with it because it's like, how did all these things come here to smell the same, but they're so different, you know? That is weird.
0: Yeah. So, you've you've mentioned A.R. Ammons as one of the reasons why, uh, or one of the influences around you doing book-length poems. Mm-hmm. and you've But you've also mentioned Beyonce mm-hmm. as another influence. And for that matter, um, poet friends like Ocean Vong, who s- said you were ending your poems too early. A- and you have this great line, I cut my hair in mourning of the old life, but grow my poems long. But I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the book-length poem and its influences for you about some of the things that, including the feedback of friends or teachers that brought you to the book-length.
1: Well, to get back to something that I said earlier, um, mentioning that, like, feeling kind of insatiable, wanting to, that's why I wanted to move to a city, that's why I wanted to go to New York, because I wanted something that could kind of contain me, because I kind of felt... Like not not poor, but 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 it felt immaterial. I needed something to. I needed I needed a a suit or a container or something because I just felt like the edges of me were bleeding out all the time. Um, And the book length format became a container of sorts. It became uh, it became a, a a conduit through which like I could express the too muchness, you know, and the obsession and those ways in which I felt maybe monstrous, but definitely like. I couldn't stomp too hard on the ground because I thought I would break the world or something like that. You know, it became a repository for the impulse towards excess. Um, And that became, too, I remember, like, feeling very inadequate standing in front of long poems because I didn't know if I would be able to sustain my attention over them. I was avoiding them. I mean, it's weird to come back to, but... In the same way, again, I've been obsessed with plot and characterizations and that kind of stuff. And it's like, if a character um, is avoiding something, you have to make them confront that in the book or in the whatever, in in the, the course of this fictional narrative. And it was like, I was avoiding long poetry from the beginning. because, And I don't know why. I was scared of it or something. Um, but then... Reading what was the first I think probably the first one was maybe the bridge. So maybe the first one that I read um, And and AR was one of the first ones I mean autobiography of red was an early one too um, I feel like Jane and um, Don't let me be lonely and um, blue it's mm-hmm. and um, hard country and um, you to One by Jennifer Tamayo. There, like I, the more I started to read them, um, and The Vanishing Line by Jeffrey Yang. The more I started to read them, the more I started to understand and really respect and really, really feel like it's the way in which it, a long poem, um, both captures and submits to time. It it exists some in some different dimension. I understood as I was entering it, uh, a a battlefield where the moon says, "I love you." That as I was entering these things, or Patterson, or whatever, um, I was almost like I I was being given a um, a, not a reprieve. What's the word I'm looking for? I was maybe it was I was being given that membrane. I I felt I found myself in a kind of container, and and it just kind of. it like just vibrated differently for me, and and I they became super enriching, and all of my intelligence and all of my attention, um, if I submitted it to use a word that I've used before, if I submitted it to the work, it would come back to me tenfold. Like I felt nourished. Like I felt like. Um, if I tried my best, I would get my best out of it. You know, that, that it was, um, almost like a karmic exercise. Hmm. Maybe all poetry is like that for different kinds of people, but that's what long poems are for me. Yeah.
0: So, so in junk, you say that the hope is unity, but the reality is more sandpapery. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I wanted to return with that in mind to the use of, of we and the use of abstractions, um, Particularly if we think again to to Walt Whitman, the use of "we" by a white poet to collectively represent people whose experiences aren't his so so one of the other, I think, highlight moments of the summer uh, workshop this summer was your live episode of the podcast, mm. uh, Food for Thought. and um you talk specifically about writing across difference, and it was really it was so thoughtful and nuanced. And also so generous that I know Tin House is considering making it uh, obligatory listening for (laughs) for new... Really? Yeah. They've talked about the possibility of having that be sort of part of orientation, essentially, for for new students. But I'm hoping we could talk... Well, I hope people will go to Food for Thought and listen to this podcast episode. Please do. But um, I was hoping in the meantime, we could talk about this sort of eternally recurring question of writing across difference, especially when one is writing down a vector of of power
1: it require i think anyway it requires more intention and thought than writing uh laterally or or upwards so there so it's it's like what is your investment in this community in this voice in this uh, uh identity and can that be better served by something other than a persona poem can that be better served by something other than a character who speaks in a you know so um th- that that's one thing that i i feel like i'm always mindful of is it you know, could you just show up to a rally? Could you, like, donate to a cause? If, if your goal is representation or, um, you know, maybe recommend somebody to an editor or maybe, I don't know, work with some people to start a fellowship. Like, I, you know, there are impulses that definitely come from somewhere and that should be honored. But maybe uh, uh, writing, a char- maybe a character isn't its ultimate fruition.
0: So, I mean, maybe other than focusing on the question, should I be able to or should I not be able to, the question might be, have you examined your motivations in the first place?
1: Yeah, because I'm not good at – there are people who I know who are very prescriptive about what people should and should not do, and they – You know, that should definitely be honored Um, and also difference should be honored. I'm not that kind of a person. I don't feel personally like I can say don't do this or like I can't like I can't say like don't write a native character. I would hope that if you do, it's with a lot of care if you're not native. Um, And then ultimately the result will be will reveal what your motivation was. Cause if that person ends up being a device or a spirit guide or a noble savage or a squaw or whatever, I'm going to say your impulse was fucked up and that's a bad thing. And you should not have done that. But like, so so again, and this not being prescriptive, it's just, it's just, instead of me saying you should or should not do that. um, Again, I just say question the impulse and listen to it and talk to people and do some research and read a lot and 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 again it's because like if you're going to make that much investment if you're going to make that much investment in a community if you're going to understand that like do you want to do you want to use this headdress because if you do you have to understand the co- cultural context within which it is you're going to have to do a lot of research and if that's not what you want to do then move on and do something else
0: right well you sometimes hear writers say I'm a white cis heterosexual man, so my life isn't that interesting. Mm-hmm. And we heard that at the Tin House workshop, mm-hmm. actually, also from someone. But um, if that feels like a particularly problematic uh, reason to imagine yourself as as someone else, in 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 my mind, mm-hmm. I was curious about your thoughts about. Yeah, the, that's something weak. that you that's hear. A
1: cop out. That's so weak. <laughs> also, like we know. You don't have to tell me. I know. I look at you. I know that you're a, a white, cis, hetero. Do you think I don't see that? Of course I see that. Of course I know. That's where you start. That That is that's that is throat clearing. <laughs> <laughs> now get, let's get to the conversation.
0: In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to poet Tommy Pico about his latest book, Junk, from Ten House Books. So all, th- all three of your books touch on the ways people are, are more interested in artifacts than people, Mm -hmm. Um, whether it be destroyed statues in the Middle East rather than living refugees who are fleeing the conflict or people wanting to adopt Native American uh, cultural or religious traditions, say dream catchers or bird songs or sweat lodges, without having to actually grapple with actual Native Americans and how they might feel. Um, In IRL, you talk about this desire to know about native rituals, to um, take tribal secrets and abstract them from any meaningful com- context. And I know different tribes or, or nations have different uh, rules around disclosure, mm-hmm. around what ceremonies are, are are okay to talk about or not talk about outside of the community. And I guess I just wondered what, com- what considerations happen for you as an artist in relationship to the viejas reservation and the Kumeyaay nation is there is is there a lot of deliberation around um the art making in relationship to anything around the community
1: again from irl i feel like if i'm remembering this correctly i mean i should because i wrote it ostensibly but um there was a part about like um i don't I, i don't get the um like I don't get the opportunity or whatever of keeping my God's name secret because the name for her is gone or the word for her is gone or whatever. I feel like so much has been intentionally destroyed or scrubbed clean or estranged from at least me. I don't know if I can speak for other people in my nation, but at least for me. Um, and that that like it, it, I, I do know that there is a caginess about give, giving – in general, giving our stories to other people or telling them, or there's this idea of like Indians as being stoic or whatever, and like that's not. Listen, Indian people are some of the most extra, some of the funniest, some of the like weirdest people that I know and love and appreciate. But it's like that's just how we act around you because we're just used to you coming in and stealing stuff. So there there is a kind of hesitance to perform or to act out or whatever, um, and also that comes from you know the trauma of boarding schools and and the trauma of literally like being killed by California state legislature. Like, so, um, but, but, but I don't, I can't, I'm I can't remember what the original question was. Sorry.
0: Well, I guess the question was around disclosure and around this question of theft and how people want to take the bird songs, the sweat lodges, but without the people who, who do them. Um, if that, if, if there's any ways in which you feel like you are, um, Grappling with th- those questions of disclosure when you're writing,
1: yeah, as a, as a poet, yeah, no, that's actually really interesting because there, to a certain degree, I have to disclose everything. You know, to a certain degree, like I don't, I don't get secrets. I don't get, um, is especially when when you're writing and all you're trying to do is like open up sort of the kingdom of your head and be like try to capture something or some of these words and things floating around. Like in my creative practice, it's almost like. It's akin to therapy in, in in sort of therapy that that I practice anyway um, that I have to say everything nothing can go unsaid everything has to be out in the open I, I have to disclose everything uh, you know um, like I, I can't have secrets and I can't have um, alternatives or I can't have like um, a, a, a subtext everything has to be text um, th- that that is the place from which my practice as a writer originates and I see how that contradicts with the way that I've sort of been raised to keep it close to play it really close to the chest you know um but then I you know talking about motivation like as much as anger can be a motivation so is fear and maybe they're I mean they're cousins if they're not you know two parts of the same person um I think a lot of that came from the, f- the fear of like having things stolen from us. And I just had to convince myself, I guess, some way, and at least for me personally, that what I was making was worth the disclosure, mm-hmm. you know, that like what I was doing, what I was putting out into the world and what I was innovating and, and the ways in which I was making more Kumeyaay culture, contributing to the culture, um, that like that it had to be worth that, you know, because there are taboos that I'm breaking. In, in, In IRL, for example, the whole thing about not being able to say people's names after they died, that's real. That is a taboo that I broke in that book, but it was because, like, I... I need them that's that was like my invocation more or less to the muse that traditionally happens in, in in longer work. It was me telling them I mean I've never actually talked about this before but it was it was me breaking the taboo to be like you know you can't say their name after they died because it, it it distracts them from heaven it sullies the peace that they rest in and it's like I need you right now I need you I call on you because like I don't know what to do or else I'm gonna I'm gonna be there too like I need to figure out something way to stay alive because i'm running out of reasons and and in and in any type of breaking a taboo it's like either the the um the the it's the inversion of it was that like traditionally breaking the taboo means like that there's tragedy that happens that befells the person but i but i wanted to be like no breaking this taboo it's not forever it's just for now and it's and it's like um it's an in, the intention was more to just like uplift or or to figure out or to get a spotlight or to get some mooring or 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 do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah.
0: And does has that created any friction uh, around people who in at the in the Villa house <laughs> Reservation who would who would have preferred disclosure? Like, I mean, is there probably probably
1: yeah? But the thing is like. You can't live with everybody else's voice in your head if you expect to say anything. Yeah. You have to hear your voice first. You know what I mean? You have to fix your mask before you can fix the mask of the person next to you. And it's like, I can apologize, but I needed a reason to stay alive. You know what I mean? Like, And and I've had so many other like young, weird, queer, indigenous people talk to me. I mean... We were talking off mic before about me sort of perpetually being on tour. Like I travel all the time. And one of the reasons why I keep doing it is because without fail in every stop, there's at least one weirdo native person who's like, I see myself in this. Mm. And that floors me. Like I never expected that. I was just trying to stay alive. I was being really selfish. I didn't think it would have an effect on anybody else. Mm. And then to have somebody come up and say that and and I can I can have a moment with them and say like this is for us. This is ours. I made this for myself and I didn't understand that I was making it for you too, but it's yours. Mm. And just remember that and make yours too, you know?
0: Was there somebody for you who was life-saving in that way? Someone that you were reading when you were young and and when you were talking about facing the light pollution uh, Mm. uh, and wanting to go towards the light pollution, was there somebody that was, that made that seem possible for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot of, it's weird. Like, you know, everybody from the babysitters club to goosebumps, you know what I mean? Grover and them like, sure. I mean, it's, and, and it's hard, like contending with your problematic faves is hard, right? It's like, um, Sherman Alexie was one of those people and unfortunately he can't be one of those people anymore but I can't deny the, the that his work was incredibly powerful to me in in giving and showing me somebody who uh Came from a, a similar cultural context that I did, but who's right, And I'm, and I'm not saying, I'm, you know, I'm not like shitting on on N. Scott Momaday or Joy Harjo or Linda Hogan or Louise Erdrich or any of those other people who also did this similar, had a similar effect on me. But it was like the 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 sharp, the 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 barb and and the anger in the humor and all of that kind of together in that like rubber band ball that I responded to personally. Hmm.
0: That's well said. Um, Let's talk a little bit about your next project, Feed. Okay. Uh, Tell us how it interlocks with junk, how it comes from junk, and what is animating it that makes it
1: feed and not junk. Yeah. My editor told me he was like, you know, this isn't pejorative, but this is, like, very sweet it's a sweeter book. It's a, it's a, um, I think that anger is the least motivating force of feed. And in a way it completes the circuit of the four books. I thought of them in terms of four seasons. So IRL was the summer book. Nature poem was the fall book. Junk was the winter book. Feed is the spring book. There is In the way that I think junk was really searching for it, it it, it had the idea of, 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 um, I'm not going to say relaxation, but it had this idea of solace that I think feed realizes. And, and it's, it's so referential to IRL and to Nature Poem and to Junk in the way that like I think feed was the thing that I always wanted to write, but I needed to get some other stuff out of the way first. Mm. And so there is a way in which it's still obsessed with um the the form like obsessed with the Technology obsessed New York World, etc. Feed. Yeah. IRL. Feed. Yes, I see how they're related. <laughs> and then the same wanting to create a landscape on the page that exists within Nature Poem. Yes, that's there, of course, too. And then in junk, the the wanting to be a kind of the, the like junk is so incredibly tightly wound. It again, it's the container. It needed the container for the chaos. And then feed is it exploded right? It's no, unlike any of the other poems. I mean, it's like junk in the sense that it just keeps going. Um, it, it's like IRL in the sense of its, you know, it's like vigor. And it's like n- nature poem in the sense of its its, its, its physicality. But um, it just, there's no, in terms of it needing like air holes or in terms of it needing like a refrain or whatever, it just kind of keeps going. And there's more plot and there's more characters and there's more dialogue and it's it's more of a uh a a realization of both song and poetry and and in a way i'm trying to make them indistinct i'm trying to repair what was their rupture um you know back in the day (laughs) and kind of being like these things together is the feed that i it's it's like i've a kind of a character a person uh Contending um, um, with the fact that they have they they've found the n- nurturing source of whatever, so mm-hmm. so that's why the four books together tell this story, and then in a way it it feeds back into IRL, so you could just kind of keep looping the four of them.
0: Yeah. Well, you were on you were recently on this podcast that I hadn't heard of before called Cooking by Ear.
1: Oh yeah yeah yeah.
0: That I really loved. Uh, you were cooking a recipe together. Yeah. And you could hear the sounds of the food cooking and the sizzling of the oil and. And given that the kumiyai ways of cooking and gathering food were largely destroyed in your grandmother's generation and that you grew up mostly on, on fast food and government-issued canned foods, mm-hmm. um, I, I'm imagining, I don't know if this is true, but I'm imagining when I read the line in Junk um, that you're the opposite of a foodie or a junkie, <laughs> uh, that feed is also about... Um, nourishment and and read maybe this appearing on this podcast as part of the uh, on the uh, cooking by ear podcast is part of this process of reconnecting yourself to to food in a different way Yeah. Is, is, am i reading into yeah, that absolutely.
1: right yeah absolutely that the, the in the way that i talked about you know the magic in somebody's voice i mean cooking is also a kind of magic right you start out with ingredients you come out with a thing and repairing a relationship to food through learning how to cook i mean the book is a recipe that's a thing like feed is a recipe it, it kind of comes in and out and it, and it there are instructions i mean i i cooked with a lot of people and, and doing the food uh, cooking by ear podcast was when i was gathering the material for lack of a better word for this long poem i was cooking with people i uh first of all shout out to christina loring a producer of, of uh cooking by ear um and cal, cal peter who cooked with me um i cooked with um this writer colin wynnette this artist um paul sapuya uh i cooked with the singer jess paps i cooked with just like a ton tons of other people and i just wanted to hear their stories i wanted to know their food stories because i didn't have any you know i didn't in my um my, my friend Becky, who just remembers like cooking in her grandmother's kitchen in Mexico City, you know, and I, because I, I needed some of, you know, some of that magic. My friend uh, Liz Hirsch, who's an artist, um, I cooked with her and she made me um, some of her like we made this pasta edition she was talking about how like she learned to cook with her husband and like that's the thing that they were do they did together right so like that was a part of their bonding right and so i w- I became a part of their relationship to a certain extent too or my friend christina christina loring producer of this pack uh, of cooking by ear um we made one of her grandmother's um red sauces and it was like it's sort of like in her memory and it was like not soon after she passed and she didn't really know if she wanted to do that and then we ended up doing it and it was and we cooked well into the night it took, we finished at like 11pm and we were all exhausted but it was just like so cathartic and, and I was just like I, because I don't know how to cook and I, so I was teaching myself how to do it and so in a way I was like these are the ingredients of a Teebs or a Tommy or whatever um, and the book is also a epistolary in nature so it kind of checks in dear reader every now and then because I think of recipes as being epistolary and it also gave me um, I think epistolary work gives you very quickly gives you an audience you're writing towards and I had been yeah. collecting all this material and cooking with all these people but I still didn't have the form and so I had a lot of, of notes but I didn't have a poem yet and I was like how do I turn this into a poem and um, I did this a residence at the Ace Hotel called Dear Reader curated by Alexander Chi. shout out to Alexander Chi, one of my favorite people in the known galaxy um, and you had to go you had to stay a night at the Ace and then you had to write a letter and it started off it had to be started dear reader and once i got that the it was like i found the like the, the the pasta machine to like feed all this dough into
0: well let's let's end the conversation today with another reading from junk i, I, I picked out another section that i think also maybe touches on some of these questions around food as well
1: molten forming A rock becoming magma, becoming lava, becoming land, land, the trauma of lava, lava, the lamp of the ancestors and later a cheeky find in the junk shop and rising in our living room, living groom, just because nothing cares doesn't mean it lacks meaning. What's the point of curiosity but a train rolling past the spot where the Donner party feasted and then go on a four-hour Wikipedia downward spiral? I'm the closest thing to a mime parade, I whisper, home late, tiptoeing down the creaky hallway, trying not to wake my roommates. Nice chicken parm, sluts, I say to my fingers at lunch. Dissociation is evacuating from the inside. I just know we'll have a good time. Junk a relief map of your traumas, dipping your whole arm into the bin of sunflower seeds. I'm in my Shonda Rhimes year of yes, and so far, It's Pretty freak. Gave a beach to a logger in town for a football game at his hostel. Almost wrote hostile. The old-fashioned way is in I met him at a bar after lingering eye contact. No apps. Told him I was writing this poem. Flush with success after only eating half the cheeseburger for dinner. For the first time in my life, it wasn't no burger or four burgers. Full-on Rocky situation. He said he was flattered every time his girlfriend's gay friends grabbed his beer kit. bacon-wrapped, date-flavored Doritos, the artifice of order, predictability, measured time, present wrapping, Order, order, pockets of order, or Durham. I dumped a boy from Raleigh today. The baton of junk, the dance whirls, whorls, war turtles. So what if I doggy paddled into the ocean to crap? Whales shit in the ocean all the time. Cut to mall, dressing room, thousand outfits montage. Ignorance is a tool to revive the feeling of doing something new. Junk has to be the poem of our time. Pointless accumulation, clinging to a million denials. Why do you need an assault rifle? What if radioactive bears? Buying in bulk, afraid of forgetting the party in 2007 when Chantal shouted, Jamiroquois requires holding this party together! Junk is the garbage people keep. Didn't they tell you I'm a meteorologist but for people? What's it called? Psychic? Psychic side chick, in maths, arbitrary is a thing without specific value. Quite the junkery. The world, all of its rock formations and space missions and presidents and religious phobias and fashions, fossils, all of it has always seemed so arbitrary to me because to survive this long into an occupation feels sometimes so arbitrary to be and then sometimes so divine. Who else could survive but my line? It's true, your junk won't save you from a tsunami, but I'm descended from a group whose cultural history, language, gods, cosmology, calendar, stories, government gate was capital O obliterated. I'll stop writing this when it stops happening. So when I get anything, it's hard to let go. Resisting death for generations. I want to make the opposite of death.
0: Thanks so much for being on Between the Covers, Tom. Thank
1: you for having me. And I have to just mention really quickly that the line, junk has to be the poem of our time, is a direct reference to Garbage by Air Emmons because in that poem he says, garbage has to be the poem of our time. Mm. Just FYI. (laughs) We've been
0: talking today to Tommy Pico, the author of Junk from Tin House Books. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO volunteer powered non-commercial listener sponsored full strength community radio from Portland, Oregon found at KBOO.FM more of Tommy Pico's work can be found at heytebs.com Dot .tumblr.com and his podcast can be found at food for thought food4thot.simplecast.fm I've also uploaded Tommy Pico reading from his fall 2019 upcoming collection feed to the bonus archive. This joins bonus material by Carmen Maria Machado, Laney Zumas, Vicky Now, Therese Marie Myatt, Sheila Hetty, Boris Gander, and others. All of this can be found at Patreon.com slash Between the Covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Laudbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's Trove of Ukulele covers can be found at SoundCloud.com slash Barbara Browning.